Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This episode is brought to you by Kamlan. Kamlan is a post-apocalyptic urban fantasy podcast inspired by folklore and Arthurian legends. It's written and directed by Ella Watts, who you may know from her work from Doctor Who Redacted and Eliza, A Robot Story, and produced by Amber Devereaux at Tin Can Audio. Y'all, this is one of my favorite new podcasts. I am so excited for you to hear it. It's tightly written with mythic weight and personal stakes and just absolutely gorgeous sound design. Go subscribe to Kamlan, that's C-A-M-L-A-A-N, wherever you're listening to this, and stay tuned at the end of the episode for a trailer for the show. Hello, Jeffrey here. We're back with another live recording of the Unwell Team chatting with Dr. Bridget Keown at the University of Pittsburgh Queer Horror Week. We had such a good time talking with students and faculty there. By the way, if you work at a university, conference, or convention, and would like to have someone from the Unwell team come give a talk or a workshop at your institution or event, definitely reach out to us through the contact at unwellpodcast.com. Now, I'm going to head back to post-production work on Season 5. I hope you enjoy this talk from the University of Pittsburgh's Queer Horror Week. Thank you all for joining us for our second podcasting 101 event here at the University of Pittsburgh. <laughs> I am a disembodied voice right now, which is Sergio, and I am a lecturer in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies program, as well as a member of the University of Pittsburgh's Our Studies Working Group. And this afternoon, we are honored to welcome the creative team from the Unwell podcast, as well as the team behind Pitt's own Welcome by Design podcast, to talk with you a little bit about the technical side of podcasting, including sound design and ensuring that our work is welcoming for all. Uh, so I know our guests have some props and plans for us, um, but I think maybe we'll just start with a general question about sound design in podcasts um, and thinking about, as you had mentioned, kind of sound as a character in the work that you do. And maybe we could speak a little bit about the way that sound functions in podcasts for you. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Jeffrey uh, Nils Gardner. I am the executive producer, director, and occasional sound designer uh, for Unwell. Um Sound design for audio fiction is a really fascinating thing because you end up having one person who in, you know, in theater, film, television, you have a set designer and a lighting designer and a costume designer and uh, someone doing cinematography, um, directing camera, things like that. And that work all gets done by the sound designer. Um, and often in, in a large production, a sound designer will, you know, you have a team of six or seven people working on any one thing, but it ends up being really kind of comprehensive. And uh, I think because of that, there's a really kind of interesting unification of design that can happen. People can do really wild things because you have kind of, one central clearinghouse and, and one sense that all of the stuff is being processed through. Mm-hmm. I'm Jess Wright Bula. I'm a writer on the show. I'm well. Um, it's interesting on the writing side because it's like the sound design really starts with the writer um, and with the sound effects that the writer has decided to put in. Um, I mean, what is a, a, a script for an autodrama, but basically dialogue and sound effects. And that's all you have to work with. And so for me, the main goal of the writer is to try to inspire the sound designer. Um, often we, we do not meet. Um, if it's a 
a larger production. And so for, for me, the puzzle is how do I convey through suggestions of curated sound in a scene to the sound designer, how to inspire them to create something magical, horrible, wonderful, all of that. Um, and often it will be a, a mood or a feeling. And then it's like, okay, what tools can the writer give the sound designer to, to, to express that? I mean, my gosh, like not much. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting interplay between the job of the writer and the job of the sound designer. Yeah, um, uh, this is Ellie Maitland. Um, I am a voice actor on Unwell, but have worked with Jeffrey and Hartlife as uh, a live sound artist on a couple of productions previously. And when we talk about audio drama and its relationship to sound design and characterization, um, I'm fond of talking about earning the medium of audio drama because every story has uh, like different strengths and in ways that it can be exciting to be told. So if a story is being told purely through visuals, like in a graphic novel versus uh, cinema, where you've got kind of all of the elements versus audio drama, um, just the ways that you can enrich the environment to make them an additional character that is compelling to your listener and also inspires your sound designer artists to flesh out that world and add uh, more specificity to what is going on in the action of those scenes. Speaking of the action though, you really want to set your sound designer for success um, as a writer. If you don't want, if there's a heist, like maybe the heist is not a painting. Can it be something that makes some sort of, um, have some sort of sonic shadow? of some sort, or like, can the, can the place be set in, in a place that has a strong kind of oral uh, kind of set piece? Like, uh, okay, a museum sounds awesome. Okay, you've got those big echoing footsteps for your sound designer, but like what, or like a library is supposed to be quiet. So like, it's very difficult to set your sound designer up for success as a writer, setting it in a library, because you kind of, especially in different rooms of a library, oh my God, what a disaster. Because then like, how, how do you show the movement through time and space through like one quiet room in a library? Oh, now we're in a different quiet room in a library. Um, you put an owl in the second room right. to, to let you know it's night. Um, so this this kind of um so I, you you can be strategic and you should be strategic in kind of thinking of scenarios and thinking of of, of, of strong places with strong senses of place um inside of the submarine that's pretty cool um you know um I think a library because we are kind of in a well place, but, but I'm I'm actually gonna I'm I'm gonna disagree with you here yeah. a little in that I think you should write write me some libraries because <laughs> because because libraries do have a really distinct sonic character they are muffled there are all these you know there are all these baffles that sound doesn't carry and that's absolutely something you can design in and so like the the very particular kind of hushed tones of a library um you know you're going to accomplish it in collaboration with your director because I shouldn't whisper because we're actually recording a podcast, but like people speak differently inside a library. They try to make their voices not carry. And so I think like having things that, as Buha was saying, sound distinctive, whether that's in how they're quiet or how they are loud or how they have, you know, varied soundscapes. A um, sense of place. I, yeah. think very I, I would jump off that and, and say that, yes, a library is one of those places where it has a character that informs the other uh, voice characters in a scene in a, a very recognizable way. I also want to go back a little bit to the owl because I want one in the library, but also <laughs> uh, not to be afraid to play with iconography, the things that we associate through uh, conditioned storytelling uh, with certain environments or circumstances. The evil uh, scream in the desert. <laughs> Although that's usually a red tail hawk. It is, yeah. <laughs> or Frank Welker. Eagle. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine wisely once said, birdies mean daytime and crickets mean nighttime. And so there are really fun things that we can be using to play with audience expectations and also uh, choose when we're breaking those rules. And also when we're making those sounds more personal to our uh to our own stories. What do crickets mean or sound like in uh, different eras or areas? Uh, one time I was doing a show that was uh, set in Ireland and I was researching that the playwright had painstakingly indicated that we had transitional night crickets 
but they don't have the same kind of crickets in Ireland that we do in uh, North America. And so the creative problem solving slash negotiation began of the idea of the sound versus the actuality of the sound and how we were playing with that to still give a satisfactory um, communication to the audience of what transition is happening. I also think when you're just starting out with audio drama, learning to trust your sound designer is such a crucial part of writing a scene that plays well with the ear and doesn't feel overwritten. Like you don't need to have your character go, oh my God, you're drawing a gun. You're pointing a gun at me. (laughs) So much of that can just be the sound of the gun being drawn, the sound of like the gun being cocked and the, the balance of power shifts in the scene. And everybody knows like, okay, this is, there is no mystery as to what's happening right now. Like, I think that's also trusting your audience. Mm-hmm. And boy, is this, it It feels like that was a, a fight that we like litigated and relitigated in the kind of rise of indie audio drama over the last decade. And now that like, there's a lot of kind of corporate things coming in, um, we are fighting that fight again. And that like, sometimes it's good. And sometimes no, you don't need it. You know, yeah, trust your trust your sound designer, trust your audience. It's interesting to me as well with um, more commercialized, larger productions now, where I feel like a lot of folks have been conditioned with the idea of cinematic sound that simply doesn't play in the same way in an audio drama environment. You can have a sound design in audio drama that is full without still being busy in a way where your brain is going to uh, suggest uh, a failure to compute or dissatisfaction when things in a uh, visual like film are not all articulated in a satisfactory way. But uh, we're going to go back to Chekhov's gun in audio drama, where if, if there's a dog barking in the background, it needs to be far enough in the background that we're not assuming or getting mad that we're not going to play with uh, freckles in other <laughs> scenes. So just having that balance uh, and being, not being afraid of nuance and expansiveness, but also like just recognizing the need for specificity. And I think to, to build on that, um, says the disembodied voice, <laughs> is one of the things that Anhal does so beautifully is layer sound um, in order to create these worlds. I'm wondering if you could just talk about the, the science of, of building sound and layering sound, but also using that as a, a way of expanding your world. So kind of the, the functional and the creative sides of that. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, I think from a sound design perspective, okay, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about numbers and math, but not too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you can think about sound, um, it, one of the primary ways is going to be in a frequency range. So low frequency sounds, sounds that the, the sound waves are long, are going to be low pitched sounds and high pitch sounds are going to have uh, a faster, higher frequency. And a lot of times, like in a good, you know, symphonic composition, you're going to be working to both fill that frequency range, having interesting stuff in the lower registers, having some in the mids, some in the highs, and like, but also kind of watching for where you're competing. And again, it's a lot like mixing music, you know, if in your, you know, five piece rock band, if your bass uh, and guitar are kind of fighting over some of that frequency range, you're going to get something that's muddy and not interesting. In a similar way, like in a, a, a piece of audio fiction that feels very full and well-developed, you know, you're going to have your dialogue in a specific range and you're going to want to mix it so that your dialogue isn't competing with the soundscape and um, key sound effects and things like that so that your audience like has the satisfying aural experience of there are all of these different audio elements, but they're never fighting to figure out what they should be listening to in a given moment, unless that's what you want them to be doing. And, you know, I have certainly frustrated audiences on purpose in that way. <laughs> um, I, in, in a lot of my um, sound artwork, 
I do a lot with kind of contrapuntal voices, you know, people speaking over top each other at the same frequency range, deliberately so that you get confused as to what words are coming from one person. That's a bad way to mix dialogue <laughs> uh, if you want anyone to understand anything. But <laughs> well, jumping in, so Welcome by Design is not an audio drama, right? It is an interview format podcast. So like what we have to say is coming up podcasting 101 from a very different angle. But even, even if you want to take, uh, and I'm hoping all, everybody who's joining is virtually in present, right? Go make a podcast. Um, it's so accessible. You can do it. Even if you want to make one that's more about conversations, which you can't script, you can't totally design from the outset. There can still be moments, right? Your intros, your outros. One of the things that our sound designers did was take our logo, which Lynn designed, is actually a door. Uh, and so the idea of welcoming people into inclusive design is really important. And so I don't know if you want to speak a little bit about the, the interviewing you do and also about physical levels. Because I know you have <laughs> yeah, uh, so we interview um, practitioners in the space of inclusive design. Um, and one of the questions we ask in our pre-interview form is like, can you um, give us some sounds of like a space that feels welcoming or like a workplace because we do these interviews remotely. So there's no real sense of place. So we try to ground it with sound design, um, which is a really interesting way to like learn things you didn't expect you'd learn about the guests um we learned like our episode two guests were really into classic rock which is fun um but getting moments to kind of give place um i was originally like super nervous to play with sound layering because like if people are hard of hearing various cognitive disabilities sensory processing disorders can make layering really hard to process if you have like speaking over top um, but there are accessibility guidelines that our sound designers have looked into. So for anyone who is interested in making their podcast accessible while playing with sound layering, it's making sure that the speaking is 20 decibels above whatever the sound design is. That's kind of the web content accessibility guideline. Um, Unless you're playing with that for design reasons. Right. <laughs> yes. If it's meant to be understood, that's the guideline. But like... We don't have moments where you're not supposed to understand it on your show, <laughs> but if there's like a dramatic moment where confusion is the uh, end game, then go go wild. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. We, um, in terms of, of accessibility in that way, a, a thing that we also think a lot about is, is the stereo field, uh, the kind of baseline audio files that a podcast is going to be delivered in is, is a stereo file. There'll be a left channel and a right channel. And in audio fiction, you can do an enormous amount in terms of spatializing the, the room based on how people move through that field. But if you have someone who is mixed all the way into your left channel and you have someone who is hard of hearing in their left ear or Notably, if you have, you know, a character that's mixed all the way into the right channel and someone is driving their car, they're going to lose most of that. And so, um, you know, I think being really cognizant of how you are doing that and like setting people up for like, hey, you know, I, I need to be putting people over on the right for this. So I do not recommend I recommend you listen to this with headphones and not driving because don't drive with headphones. Um, <laughs> safety tips. Uh, I think, um, uh, you know, one of our big tools for that is publishing transcripts, which also we find the audience loves, both because they can read along and like get nuances and also our writers slip amazing little things in, um, some of which we have to redact. Uh, <laughs> What was uh, Bilal's, um, you know, like they, they sing a song that is somewhere between a collegiate anthem and a dirge. Um, I haven't written the tune, but go get a composer because we have budget for that now. Uh, <laughs> and that made it into the final transcript. It wasn't technically, you know, uh, it, an audio description, but it was too good to, to take out. Yeah, uh, our, our transcription was a lot of after the fact, right? We have a general outline and everybody involved in the conversation knows, okay, here's kind of where we think the conversation will go. But, uh, and I just, 
feel like this always comes up when you're talking about podcasting and I want it to come up all the time. God bless and pay the humans who do transcription because they are so important. And because even things like Rotary AI, which in a lot of our classes here use, it's a relatively accessible automatic transcription service. It's still not the same as having a human go through and especially if that human can work with you, right? To make sure the information that you want to make sure your audience is getting is out there, is out there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think with nonfiction, it's like very critical for like getting the, the key elements of the conversation. But I think there's a very interesting creative space um, in audio dramas, in subtitling. Um, I'm thinking about like the Stranger Things uh, captioning team had an interview and they like buried D&D Easter eggs in the subtitles, which like I, I love when community forms around accessibility because there were like memes um, and it like made people aware of like a new route of accessibility. So like when that part of the team gets creative, it's really cool to see. I think about also in terms of actually, uh, there's a set of Russian novels and then films called Nightwatch is the first one. And they are they are kind of, yeah, <laughs> lots of nods over there. This is the horror, of course. Um, but in the film versions, it's, you know, like uh, supernatural, you know, vampires and things like that. And the captions were all animated according to the magical powers of each character. So the vampires had like red captions that would dissolve into clouds of blood. And there was like a techno wizard who like their captions typed out in a green font. And it was very cool. Um, I think the other one that I just saw recently was um, Mother! Exclamation point, where spoilers for this movie it's all um uh it's it's god and the old testament and uh, i guess a little bit of the new testament as told by you know a, a couple in a house but as other characters start coming in um because they needed to like say the the names of these characters no one in the movie has a name they're all things like the flagellant the <laughs> um the the martyr things like that and it, like it adds this whole other layer that would have just like disappeared until you saw the credits. And I thought actually really added something to this movie that was, you know, this is not a review podcast about. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that for later. I, I guess thinking about, about sound design specifically in your genre, can we talk a little bit about how soundscapes help make things scary. Again, I think I'm is just a great uh, example of this from things like radiators to footsteps in the woods to music boxes. I mean, I think to record players, which we were talking about, but, but so many aspects of the show are specifically sound-based without words. Um, how do we make scary things that way? <laughs> Well, I, I just heard you inhale. Yeah, yeah go, on, go on. <laughs> um, I guess the writer has thoughts on this. Um, yeah, it's it's just so terrifying to hear scary. Like I feel like horror podcast or something like it when you're you're in your house, you're in your house, all your stuff around you, and all of a sudden there's like like hearing that that horrifying soundscape. We were okay chatting earlier. Someone just needs to tell the story that we were telling at lunch about the your your dad at the stoplight and like hearing that sound um and it, it 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 can be so effective i mean first part of that is just like gosh as the writer or the creator the person who was thinking of the ideas yeah being strategic about the use of like i guess sharp and flats you know and like surprise and like where the 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 like the the the, the, the tenor of the thing and like when are we slow rumbling when are these sharp noises when, when, like, and, and thinking about the build and ideally this wants to be kind of sewn into the script and not like dear sound designer like have fun making this spooky like i feel like the tension should really be baked in at all stages in order for it to be really effective you just again setting up your um sound designer for success and so yeah so all right so jack we hand you the script that's got <laughs> Yeah, and and, and and it's thinking about this tension. And, and especially in horror, you can also be a little more abstract like what Ellie was talking about, abstract with the sounds. Like, and, 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 and thinking about, okay, is this going to be how hyper-realistic and how how you can curate the sounds to inspire horror and just be really strategic about either found object sounds or we're bringing in like the drone, 
the mysterious, like, whoa, like the spooky noises and, and just being so strategic with the sound. And I dig, because I'm bossy, obviously, um, <laughs> really, really having the writer take a first stab at what those spooky sounds are going to be and what the tenor of that sounds give the sound designer a little bit of assistance. Like, okay, we are in a kitchen. I don't know. Like what is happening? Is there rumbling? Like the silverware shaking? Like what's something that is a slow build, slow build. And all of a sudden, I don't know, this is not a great scene that I'm like making up on the spot. <laughs> like the sink turns on and like what, what kind of like terrifying, like all the, you know, click, 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 the, like the pilot light in the stove. You know what I mean? Like how, how can we ratchet up the tension? Like how can we, um, no, I'm scared. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it is fun to play with a relationship between familiar sounds, the understood sounds that we have in uh, that exist in the real world, and also with unwell, with an element of the fantastic, and uh, how exciting that can be to create what those things sound like. What does it sound like when a house turns around? What does it sound like when? Uh, and we were talking about layering earlier, and how important it is that you have the sounds you need, but also also when those sounds go out because silence is uh, an important part of your toolkit as well. And uh, also touching back on the library and how that environment informs your characters and how they engage in it and what is at risk if they do not adhere to the rules of those environments as well. Playing with proximity is also a really good example too. Like when something scary is far away and you hear it coming closer and like those are just exciting ways to be establishing rules and uh, wondering and worrying about what happens if you try to break them. Okay, the library and like all you know, stacks like the book leaves, like the, the page of the book I'll start fluttering. Like, what does that look like? And maybe there's a bird man out of books. I don't know. Okay, you've gotten just back on It's very dangerous. Um, I mean, there, I, think, I think there are a few things, other things that audio does so well that no other medium will. Um, we talk a lot about the impermanency of audio, um, which is very different from the, like the way we talk about theater being impermanent. Like I can, in a design, introduce a, you know, a, a prop. I can put a knife down on a table, clink, and do 10 minutes of a scene and you'll forget the knife's there until someone picks it up and then you will not only see the knife, but you will remember that the knife has been there that whole time. And the ability to make things disappear in that way is so useful. I mean, it's also like, you gotta use it sparingly and carefully, but there's no better medium for a jump scare, you know, mm -hmm. especially if you convince your person to listen to the headphones, you know, <laughs> someone can be, that while not driving, you know, you can be a you know, there's there, the character is yelling to you, yelling to you, yelling to you, and suddenly they're whispering in your ear mm -hmm. and move. Um, the other, the other really cool thing that sound gets a thing we talk about is, is visuals enter through the front door, they come in through your eyes, and sound sneaks around the back. It is often giving us information that we're not fully aware of and and so can access kind of a subconscious growing terror there are different frequencies that our bodies just like naturally respond to say more about that well i mean <laughs> I, yeah there, there there's all kinds of ways that it works you know like the kind of uh, reactions, um, you know, goosebumps on your skin, either through, you know, like dull roars or like the, the deep sounds that would have been like, oh, there's a saber-toothed tiger coming. I better watch out. Yeah. So, so it gives us a lot of really subtle tools to kind of sneak information to your brain while you're not really paying attention. This is also a uh, revisit slightly of uh, something uh, we touched on in the earlier session, but um, the benefits of audio versus visual information. So the little boy back in the era when television was getting more and more popular and uh, more and more American families were getting them in their homes and an interviewer said, which one do you prefer, little boy? And he said, I like radio. The pictures are better. And there are merits to that that are both about how tailor-made 
your relationship with a story is when it's purely audio. Like if you're hearing a werewolf take out a throat, the werewolf you're imagining in your mind is very different from the one that uh, your neighbor is imagining in their mind. And not only is it uh, scarier for you, but it's also as scary as you can handle, which is a nice Mm -hmm. kind of way of uh, controlling your relationship to the story and making it uh, a safer way to uh, relate to horror storytelling as well. It gives you more agency over the narrative in a way I think is cool. It's, it's part of why, you know, the, the, there's always this fascinating tension between specificity and, and giving space for your audience to play because you need to give the audience enough information that they picture not just a werewolf, but like they're not just picturing a generic werewolf. You need a little bit of information about how much fur they have and okay, you know, are these you know flapping feet or shoes? Um, and those kinds of details will build into something that feels real without either getting too specific and really you know narrowing what they can imagine or being too general and you know you kind of the person pictures a sign that says werewolf. <laughs> um, a la like 80s BBC drama, you know. We have a question coming in from the internet, but um, how do you write and perform distinct character voices? How is character design distinct in podcast form? I'd love thoughts about this. Um, best you want to go for. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I huh, I feel like be really careful about the different timbres of voices that you're using um, mm. in your podcast um, or in, in, sorry, in every particular scene, really think about who's talking, the quality of their voices and are people going to confuse the two people um, and not in a way that you intend. Like, I don't know if it's, you have like a scene of like six older white guys. I don't really know like business people. I mean, like, unless, unless you want that kind of hubbub thing, but it's the, like the voices are truly going to get lost. And, and there's just nothing more frustrating and takes the, the listener out of um, the podcast by being like, wait, who's talking? And also it's it's stressful because you have to, every beginning of every single thing to name everyone who's in the space. Like nothing, unless you name it, unless you it, it has some sort of the sonic shadow, like the, the, the thing vanishes. And so, you know, I mean, unless I guess you just saw the people in the previous scene, like somebody walks in, you have to be like, oh, hey, Bill, what's going on? But like, then you have to do it in like a really elegant way and like not have it be tedious and the worst. Um, and a lot of, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to sneak in character names, like without it being. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, I guess, so first of all, I guess a really random quick hot tip that I have about doing dialects is just go on YouTube and like, just try to get clips of like celebrities who speak that dialect that you're interested in just talking, just to get that in your ear and get that, that, that rhythm in your ear. Um, and then that can help you um, kind of write different dialects and just even like different, I don't know, stereotypical, like, you know, gangster, Italian American from Philly, like, you know, just get that in your ear. Um, sorry, ancestors. But, um, <laughs> uh, Amelia and Mark, I'd also love to hear like from an yeah. actor perspective. Um, I'm Amelia. I I voice Marisol on Unwell. Um, I think something that I really fought when I was auditioning for Unwell was feeling like I had to alter my voice. Like I had to be like, nope, just your voice. Like you're not going in and auditioning for a character who like has a distinct accent or there's no requirement for your voice to be anything besides a human voice. And I think for performers sometimes number one, it's so much fun to do like big, like voice altering accents um, or things. But especially when you're doing something for a very long time, it can be for me, at least easy to kind of lose track of a affected voice when it's not integral to the story. So I think trusting your own voice and just, you know, the health of your throat and all that fun stuff is very important. Um, oh, yeah, sustainability is really important yes. when you're creating a uh, character voice. Big time, yeah. big time, yeah. And I'm really glad that I walked in and was just like, I'm going to talk the way I talk. I think I, I pitched Marisol down a little bit more than my natural um, voice, but not a ton. And I think I do more consonants for her. Right. Like, but that's just I, that's just something that kind of happened. 
from lots of years of voice training. But yeah, I, I think that's trusting your own self and trusting your own voice as a performer um, and not feeling the need to like sound different or sound cool. Like if you're doing your job and you're trusting the wonderful writing, you are enough and your skills and your talent are enough. I'm Mark Soloff. I'm also a voice actor. I play the old man in the woods. <laughs> Can we just assume everyone? Yeah. Uh, so as you'll find out if you listen into season two, I play the Reverend Silas Lodge. And for me, it's important for an actor to remember that even if you're doing a character voice, which I absolutely am as Lodge, everybody uses different voices for different purposes in their life. When you're talking to your infant, your voice is different than when you're talking to your manager. Um, Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) They might have similar temperaments, but uh, we speak with them differently. We wear many hats. And so if you listen to season one, before my character is really identified for who he is, he comes out of the woods. It's one of the first things that happens. He speaks with Lily. And I'm doing my kind of Don Knotts, like, gee shucks, hey, neighbor, you know, like, I see you're having some trouble there with your car. Maybe I can help you out a little bit. And uh, that is that character's idea of what a safe man, uh, a stranger, is to humans. Just like in Stephen King's It, which I often, like, compare the two characters in my mind with he he tries to become the thing that will get him what he wants and so silas has definitely a gentler side and when he and lily occasionally have a calm philosophical discussion he's not trying to intimidate and he's not trying to puff himself up he's he's being very light and oh yes lily of course of course (laughs) you know that kind of gentleness from a dangerous creature because he needs those different tactics to get into places. So doing a character voice, if I'm SpongeBob, SpongeBob is not just one note. Sometimes Mm -hmm. SpongeBob is like little innuendo SpongeBob. (laughs) And sometimes SpongeBob is I'm the boss today. So I'm gonna, you know, behave like this. That is my thought about how a character voice can have versatility. In the construction of a character voice, I think it's important to think about sort of what the major thrust of this character is, what's their point, um, and what sounds remind you of maybe somebody in your life or some performance you've seen on stage uh, that is the kind of person who does that kind of thing. So if you're playing a really uh, aggressive, um, impatient person, you might sort of creep into your aunt from New York, who you know is aggressive and impatient, and draw that into the voice you ultimately create. Yeah, I, I mean, um, don't tell Mark this, but I, I have always <laughs> been so impressed by what you do with Lodge's different registers and how, um, I mean, exactly as you were saying, it's so easy for that kind of voice work to feel one note and stuck. And the moments where within the same scene, um, you'll drop into a different register and, and, and um, emotional weight. It's just uh, so effective. I was sitting next to Mark at our season five table read. And when I tell you that I was trying to get as far away <laughs> as possible from him, um, pretty much, I mean, at this point, I, I knew enough about Silas to want to do that all the time. Um, but especially like those moments when you would dip deep into the like dangerous power, like it was remarkable. Remarkable. I mean, uh, um, while we're telling good stories about Mark. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, one of, uh, uh, I, I, I have worked with Mark for, uh, gosh, like over a decade. Yeah, a long time. When, when we were reading you for Silas, uh, you, you brought this really, you know, this, this very interesting voice and, 
and read the scene. And then I said, okay, great, Mark, um, because one of the first things Mark talked to us about uh, on our previous show was like, hey, I want to play monsters. Like, not like monstrous people, but like literally, like, I want to play a yak with a dragon head. Um, uh, and, and so I was like, great, Mark, give me that again. But you are like four-fifths into becoming a werewolf. Um, and like Mark did it and I, you know, ran out of the studio and was like, cool. Okay. Well, good enough. All right. Uh, yeah. Um, if one thing I forgot to mention, I've heard that scent is like the strongest of our senses that link us directly to an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you can walk into an elevator with somebody who's just dressed to the nines as a gorgeous person. But if they smell like sewage, you're like, something's wrong. This person might be dangerous. They might have a, a real problem with their bowels. I don't know. But even though they look totally amazing, um, yeah, aspirational for me, you know, to you, you have a warning. And I think sound is the second tear up from that. You know, you return to your familial home after being away at college or whatever. And you hear, oh, yeah, that's the way the old pilot light sounds. It takes you back with a nostalgia. And we forget that we are animals. You know, we have these biological things that are deep inside of us. So using little strategies like rhythm and pitch uh, can, can trigger um, some of those fear responses. So when Silas is trying to be a little disarming and have a tight conversation, he will use a, a higher register and when it's time to get serious that register drops into the animal growl and that's when you know that you have crossed a line oh my God. You know, that that just makes you feel like i don't want to be that's a dangerous thing but like high-pitched hey neighbor that's a safe thing and it's it's deeper than just our cognizant minds. Mm -hmm. It's also why we recommend you don't drive while listening to on what <laughs> yeah. your, your nose phone in. <laughs> There's nothing else you take away from this. It's please don't wear headphones while driving. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if that was a good transition. Again, I saw the props under the table. I think okay. you know, things like pitch and distance and how do you raise the hairs and do triggers. So there's voice acting, but there's also things like sound effects. And I want to see what y'all brought. So I, sure. I don't know if now's the time, but I, yeah. I, I would hate to have this uh, like Chekhov's briefcase that never actually got <laughs> and used. So um, as far as the different elements of play in sound design too, like there are wonderful things like environmental sound recordings um, and uh, vocal tracks for exertion sounds and uh, like pulling sounds that are readily available archival, but I'm a big found object and practical sound effects artist because my work is predominantly live. So I did bring a lot of the toys that I am consistently excited about and hopefully that people creating their own sound art at home will have reasonable access to as well. Um, now, we often talk about sound, live sound work as Foley these days, a little bit of history. So uh, it's called that in honor of Jack Donovan Foley, who was originally an interstitial director at Universal Pictures in the 19-teens, 1920s. And that changed for him when uh, in 1928, uh, Universal Pictures flagship film for the summer was supposed to be Showboat, a film adaptation of the same story as the musical. But a couple of months prior to that, Warner Brothers had released The Jazz Singer, complete with actual jazz singing in it. And so this began a kind of an arms race between the big cinematic uh, powers in that era. And I like to imagine that Carl Lamley, the CFO of Universal at the time, came bursting into Jack Foley's office, chomping on a cigar, and said, Foley, showboat's primed to sink. You gotta make this bird sing. And the reason why he came to Jack with this uh, there's a little bit of debate about this, but what I found suggests that before he worked at Universal, Jack Foley was a radio man. And so he was repurposing a lot of elements from live radio work, which was then in turn repurposed from vaudeville and commedia and all these different types of theatrical uh, sound work through history. 
So quick story. Uh, in the 1800s, there was a playwright named John Dennis. You know that guy? Uh, and he wrote this play called Atheist in Virginia. You remember that one? No, no one does because it tanked. But what was successful about it was that uh, John Dennis created a new portable way to create the sound of thunder, what we know now as a thunder sheet. And this was a far cry from the most common way of creating the sound of thunder up until that point, which had been, depending on your resources, either a rumble cart, which would be a big old cart full of stones or something heavy that stagehands would have to roll back and forth to punctuate the sounds of thunder. Or if you were really fancy, you might have a thunder run, which was a gutter system built above and around the audience where stagehands would literally roll wooden cannonballs back and forth. It was the original uh, use of surround sound. Now, I said APS and Virginia tanked, and so a couple months later, the same theater house produced the Scottish play using John Dennis's thunder sheet for the sound effects in the storm. And that is where we get the expression, you're stealing my thunder. <laughs> so in addition to things that are uh, made specifically to create the sounds of certain specific sounds, we have uh, other things that are built for the job, basically, of what they are going to be performing. Um, iconic things like footsteps uh, would be probably shoes most of the time, or light switches are probably just going to be uh, the flip of a light switch. And hold on, theory. There's our enemy. Oh, no. Or light switches. Another example of something built for the job would be a bird warbler. Uh, this is a plastic bird shaped uh, object that is filled with water. If you play it dry, though, you can also use it for the sound of a whistling tea kettle. Um, depending on what you're doing with your space, how many props, how many sound effects you're doing in a show, having things that can act as multiple sound effects can be a great way of conserving resources and also of getting your audience more engaged in using their imagination. I feel like repurposing objects plays with the same part of the brain that appreciates puns because it <laughs> recontextualizes things that we're familiar with already. And that means that I love just living my life, walking around, squeezing stuff, whether people <laughs> want me to or not, uh, hardware stores, grocery stores, uh, toy stores. One time I was just walking through a party city and I found these uh, plastic unicorns and went. <laughs> <laughs> so this has become my go-to seagull. I'll play with this with an ocean drum, which is a round flat head filled with ball bearings that you can use for the sound of oceans. Um, other things that uh, might be really helpful for you is to just broaden your imagination because it's really hard to get uh, seagulls to do that sort of thing on cue. Like certain things just aren't gonna cooperate with you. Uh, another Jack Foley story, 1960, the film is Spartacus and Stanley Kubrick is a garbage person, but <laughs> he also had spilled a whole lot of the company's budget filming all these elaborate scenes with thousands of extras in Italy. And when they came back from that in editing, they discovered they didn't have adequate recordings of all those armies marching in lockstep. So you imagine some guy comes into Foley's office. I don't think it's the same guy, but I'm gonna make you do the same voice. Foley! Spartacus is turning into a Greek tragedy. If this army can't charge, we'll all go broke. And so Jack Foley just grabs his keys and says, why don't I just do this? Problem solved. <laughs> so just having a, a curious mind and being willing to experiment with things and also have that conversation with your audience about in this world, this is what this sounds like is a great way of making sure everyone, including the audience, feels like a collaborator in this artistic project. <laughs> Can we see out the door? Can we see the door? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Is Polydor I use for travel shows? And when I'm lucky, Jeffrey's in it. <laughs> and it's got all these different G-jaws attached to it, different practical slide bolts and locks. The chain lock is one of my favorites because when I'm lucky, I get to do lots of noir shows. And it's really important for someone to be able to 
what you want. Decide it's somewhere safe and unlock the door properly. So lots of different fun things that you can do with doors. <laughs> Let's see. Shaming cloth is really important when you're doing uh, live shows for the squish and bore sound effects. If you get it wet, but it can also be a really good heartbeat. It's racing right now. <laughs> but let's also talk about context as casting. One of my favorite things from the steer soul is our friend. Big hinge. Big hinge. <laughs> <laughs> depending on how big hinge is used, it can be any number of different things in the same show as well. <laughs> so just think about what that could mean to you, what story was just told, or what elements you could pull out to create your own story with that. And also, all these things can be used practically, but in a recording studio, they can also be augmented in any number of really cool ways, cut up and manipulated. And I know someone who's really better at talking about that than I am. I need to, I need to get some recordings of Big Hinge. Big Hinge, Ellie and I have performed live fully together, and Big Hinge is like my my instrument of choice. <laughs> um, it's, it's such a good squeak and it has lived as uh, opening doors. Um, I, my favorite, let's see if I can still do it, but um, uh, a ghostly swing set. Um, it's such, and it's so, it's, I think a, a thing that you speak really eloquently about is this, like how a thing looks like, just the size of Big Hinge makes it so much, it's both easier to work with when you are often, you know, doing this complicated throwing props and like trying to coordinate with another artist, but like, it's also big enough that you can see it on stage. That's another thing that can work um, like uh, uh, visually as well as orally. Uh, one of my favorite things I've gotten to do with Jeffrey was a live show we did called Earwigs by a Midwestern playwright named Joseph Zettelmeyer. And this was a riff on the urban legend about earwigs crawling in your head and laying eggs there. Spoiler alert. So we've got this character that's been complaining about a headache for a couple of pages. This is going to uh, play into how when you're doing live uh, sound effect work, your audience is going to get invested in watching what you're revealing and what you're manipulating. So you want to be careful about how and when you're pulling a prop up for them to see because you don't want them to get ahead of the story unless you can use it for to your advantage for building suspense for a big payoff. And in this instance, the character who's been having a bad headache falls down and the narrator says, and then it happened. And we time this out to juxtapose with the rest of the narration in this paragraph and this other voice characters uh, writhing and wailing and crying that, and this was also a formal event, I took off the shrug I was wearing and put it on a nice apron and walked around in front of the table and unveiled a jack-o'-lantern that had been there the whole time and also picked up a brick. So once the head exploded, you had the crunch of the impact of the brick on the jack-o'-lantern and Jeffrey was behind me and they were holding this soaked sponge that they wrung out to be the uh, smushed brain matter and then chugged this six foot long rain stick to be the sound of the cascading escaping insects. And so the size of the rain stick was really helpful there because it also helped the audience like, oh my God, there are millions of them. It was so gross. <laughs> It was super gross. And then we went on the road and bought our produce in advance. And it turns out when you hit a cantaloupe on day one, it's very different from hitting a cantaloupe on day three. Uh, and we coated the stage in cantaloupe and then disappeared into the next. <laughs> Uh, no, no. Anyway, yeah, there's so much. And, and, and like Ellie was saying, like, there are so many exciting things you can do in recorded sound with these kind of things. A really important thing uh, is going to end up being layering. When I am making a glass break, it's almost never, you know, if, if you're, you're smashing a bottle, it's almost never one recording of a bottle. 
I'm probably pulling six or seven bottle smashes and putting them all on top of each other and like lining up the peaks so you're not noticing that there are different sounds, but like maybe one has a lot of the bass information that I need and another has a really good crinkle and another has a good tinkle smash. And so by adding those all together, you're creating a really rich evocative sound that like, yeah, is, is seven or eight glasses being shattered and, you know, maybe a lion in there to for added impact. But um, your, your brain processes that as one really rich impact rather than eight happening all at once. And that's one of the other important things is that in art like this, we're always dealing with the idea of sound rather than the actuality of sound. And this is an instance where Jeffrey is literally making things larger than life. Mm -hmm. yeah. So recognizing that we are getting close to time, um, we do have, have one more question regarding music. And I think this is one kind of for, for everyone, because I know in Welcome by Design, you kind of set your team with music, not only, you know, with your theme, but also with your guests and thinking about how you use music to create kind of that world. But also in Unlove, thinking about how music plays into it, whether it's um, catchy pop songs at Halloween or whether it's music boxes or things like that. But how does, does music function um, as a sound in, in podcasting, but also as a, a character as well? I we were very um, picky with what we chose for our trailer, especially there was a lot of conversation about that um, striking the right tone because we were talking like our podcast talks about where there are problems, but like how do we fix them? Um, so it was striking the right balance of like energy and hope without being too light. Like there was talk about ukulele being um, in in the trailer. The faculty member, yay, Dimitri Bepachenko, was like, I'll write you an original ukulele song. We're like, oh, maybe, maybe for a one-off episode. <laughs> um, because like the tone of ukulele doesn't really uh, fit when we're talking about very serious systemic issues. Yeah. Um, so being really careful about what is the music saying as we go into this episode is something that we consider a lot with our song. Yeah, and you know, uh, if anybody enjoys, uh, you know, and there's the big thing right? But the choose your interview focus or journalistic focus podcast, right? The music, especially if you keep coming back to it, right? It both becomes a sound home for your audience, right? Oh, this prepares me. I know what I'm getting into. If you use music to transition between segments or to like choose certain shifts in your narrative art, um, you can also get an audience to, to get a comfortable relationship established. So we also want something that we didn't want really to like totally jump from uh, between the trailer and our four episodes. But, but just to piggyback a little bit on what Lynn said, should you go a non-fictional or a journalistic route, you can still use sound to build emotion. And you should should use sounds to build emotion. And music is a really important part of that. And if you have people who are able or willing to like write the original stuff, amazing, but there's also a lot of resources out there. Um, and then we have some hits that we'll be talking about more and that we share online. I think from a fiction side of things, part of what music can do for you is really efficient world building, both in terms of what kind of music are people listening to in this world and how, how are your, your characters reacting to it. Um, I have a bad habit of making actors sing without checking with them first. <laughs> um, somehow I'm still on speaking terms with everybody, but um, it's it's just, it's so, I love it, it's so efficient. If I could jump in, um, something to remember in audio drama is that music essentially stokes the emotions that you want people to have. And at the end of season one of Unwell, there's a really traumatic event that's very loud. And then it shuts off to basically silence. You know, you have crickets, like just atmospheric uh, outdoor sounds. And then you have actor Michael Turrentine who's like amazing, fabulous young man. He's like the, the cast favorite, if I might say. <laughs> Sorry, other cast members, but uh, just like beautifully singing this um, pseudo-religious acapella number um, called John the Revelator or something. Uh, and it takes that, that like 
terror moment that you're experiencing. Um, and it kind of helps you come down from that a little bit. It's still eerie and it's still atmospheric and it's absolutely um, in step with what just happened, but you don't have to, you know, immediately hear like, uh, this is brought to you by Heartline. Don't forget to like and subscribe. You know, you get a nice little uh, cushion and a release so you can return to whatever you were doing before without being so fried. Music really is such a character in Unwell and Healing. Like, there's so many musicians who are unique to Mount Absalom and songs that are unique to Mount Absalom. And also, music is so related to one of the big themes and one of the big, um, like, events of the show. As, you know, to mention really the onset Alzheimer's music is, like, I think there's a conversation in the first season I have with Lily talking about Marisol's grandmother who like also had her grandfather with memory loss, but like playing songs from mm -hmm. his youth would get him into a happy place, a place where he felt more grounded. Um, and there's a wonderful scene too with Dot where music has a big impact on her. Um, it's all, I'm not sure <laughs> to say about that, but it's, it's such a character and it has such implications for how we understand what's happening in the town and what's happening to the characters in their own brains. Yeah, we've been really fortunate that we've had um, several writers who have written uh, original music for the show um, that can live within the world. Um, uh, Jess Best, who wrote us a whole episode of Halloween novelty songs, <laughs> uh, which were so fun. Do you want to tell the story yeah, about so I had written years ago, joking around with my brother and my sister-in-law, I had written this song called My Boyfriend is a jack o lantern <laughs> And I had a little dance for it. Um, we had been daring each other to, to write Halloween album songs, and I was the only one who did it. And I was a little put out, but so I had this song I was sitting around. And then when I got the Halloween episode, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I snuck in my boyfriend is jack-o-lantern? And then I thought, no, they're gonna say this is too self-indulgent, you gotta cut it. And I went, okay, what if I wrote it three different? Halloween Nazi songs. The only guy taught me to cut one of them. So I wrote three different Halloween Nazi songs. And not only did no one say, oh, this is absurd, we have to cut so much of this. Jeffrey actually came back to me at one point and said, hey, we need like twice as many lyrics on the song because the timing of the scene is such that. Uh, so I actually wrote like three and a half Halloween Nazi songs. Uh, and it was pretty fun. <laughs> Was a delight. Um, uh, yeah, and then just Wuha, you wrote the the Celery Fest episode, which features a jingle competition. Um, and those those for me uh, as as a designer, as as a, a producer, are so exciting because it's this whole other element. Like there is there is um, non diegetic sound, uh, but then also getting to play with these diegetic um, the in the world things happening and getting to pull in a whole different group of musicians. One, you know, we, we put together a little band made up of a couple of our nonprofit board members. And then I went out and visited my uh, parent, my, my father-in-law, who is a, used to be a, a jingle writer in Nashville and wrote and recorded another one of them with his children uh, and my spouse. And, um, yeah, no, it's it's a lot of fun. I think, Mark, you were you were talking about this a little bit. There's there's a little there's a bit of an interesting way in which music ends up being the like, in terms of sneaking around the back, the sound for sound. Like it is it is another degree removed in that like we are so used to from television from films to like processing that as background and like subtly inflecting how we're feeling about a thing that can be really nice it, it is it is harder i think it, it can be harder to completely score a piece of audio fiction just because you have to leave room for it in the design and notably a lot of like most of unwell is not scored um which would be weird if it were a tv show you know if you watch like no country for old men and it's so there's so little music in that film 
and it's 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 it feels weird. Um, and I don't I don't think it feels as weird in audio fiction, but there are certainly moments when you're like, oh, we're just gonna sit with this little bit of wind and these people shifting a little bit in quiet. And I, I as long as you brought up in the country bullpen, I just don't I want to do a quick shout out because uh Antoine Shigers walked down the hotel hallway with a compressed air gun where we've established a thing that is very, very bad and he's moving closer to you is just so massively done. There, there are so many good interesting sounds. I, I used to um uh when I teach post-production sound, I will use the quarters. Because if you if you listen to it, and I think this is worth remembering, podcasting, there's this, um, you know, in 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 most like interview shows, etc., you know, we make all of these weird little sounds with our mouths, clicks and pops, and and usually it's good to cut those because people don't like listening to them. But if you leave them in, you create a completely different experience for your audience. And, and that's that's a, an example of a place where you're hearing every little sound that both of their bodies are making, and it's really great. I really love it. Also, if you're ever curious about how to do a good coin flip sound, I strongly recommend a metal spoon on your hand sharply. <laughs> Pro tip for voice actors, if you want to eliminate mouth sounds, if you're doing an ad read, drink a little bit of apple juice rather than water. Does something chemically to help reduce that. And on that note, <laughs> truly thank thank all of our panelists, uh, both from Welcome by Design and Unwell, for your insights and your enthusiasm and for helping all our talk with your expertise and your inspiration. So we're listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Please hold. Your call is very important to us, and we will get to it as quickly as we can. The cataclysm is frightening for everyone. Remember, in times like these, we need to stick together more than ever. If you need emergency assistance, please call 999. Your position in the queue is 333. Hello, you've reached the Cataclysm Casualties Hotline. Can I take your name and date of birth? Peretti Green. Morgan Jones. Hu Jun Liu. Gwen Turner. Just call me Di. Okay, and who are you calling for today? My mum. Shan Thomas. She was in Aberystwyth. Matthew and Louise Turner. Uh, in Kirkwall, on Orkney. My father, Kai Liu. Ben. Ben Jones. I, I saw something on the news about a sea serpent. He's 15 years old. Anna and Sophie Green in Portsmouth. What's happening in Kowloon? Listen, is this real? I've been seeing news reports about dragons. So let me look that up for you. Where are you calling from today? Bristol. 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 Leicester. I'm so sorry. It looks like we haven't got anyone listed under that name on the database. This means they haven't been listed as a fatality. Call back tomorrow, and if you haven't heard anything from us or your loved one in three days, try the online form. I know this is scary, but it's okay. We're going to get through this. Together. Camlan, a post-apocalyptic audio drama by Ella Watts, inspired by folklore and Arthurian legends. Coming January 2024. Produced by Tin Can Audio.